Welcome to Inspire Campfire, a podcast where ordinary people tell their stories of extraordinary adventure. These are campfire stories meant to inspire the rest of us to light the fire within, get outside, follow our dreams, and return to tell our own stories. Ready? Let's strike the match. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Scott Wurzbacher, and today we're going to find out what happens when curiosity is stronger than fear. And I am so excited and honored to have with me Justin Fornell, who describes himself as an international explorer and cultural detective. He's a big thinker that simply does not accept the status quo, and his list of adventures is far too great for a short introduction. He's host of Unexplained and Unexplored on the Discovery Channel and the Science Channel. He's an award-winning writer and has written for National Geographic, Vice, The Explorer's Journal, Parts Unknown, and Roads and Kingdoms. He's also co-founder of the History, Arts, and Science Action Network, a nonprofit organization that focuses on relic repatriation, historic justice, and documenting vanishing cultures. Justin's also an extreme athlete. And last year, he set out along with his team to be the first to complete the Great Arctic Swim, a 27-mile swim crossing the Nares Strait between Canada and Greenland. This is an adventure that most of us could fail to even comprehend, let alone feel a desire to attempt ourselves. Yet, as Justin shares a glimpse of his story today, I'm confident that his curiosity and passion will help the rest of us find inspiration to trust our own capabilities just a little bit more than before. Justin, welcome to the campfire. Hello, Scott. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, man, I was so excited. There's so much out there for people to find out more about you. And I think we're probably only going to be able to scratch the surface, but we'll uh, we'll be sure to kind of share some places where people can find out more about your work and some of some of the really incredible things that you've done. But let's let's just start with the great Arctic swim from Canada to Greenland, um, because that in itself was just an epic adventure. So if you can, could we just start with you kind of sharing a little overview of what that was all about? Sure, absolutely. You know, there's a body of water between Canada and Greenland called the Narrow Strait. And the closer you get to the North Pole, really the narrower it gets. You know, I had been planning, to, I had always wanted to visit the northernmost villages of, of Greenland, in particular Kanuk, Katertad, and Sirapluk. And this is one of the places where the Inukwit people are really living out some of the the, the last of, of kind of ancient Arctic traditions. And so when I was looking at the map, you know, it's just more kind of like planning out a route in the area to visit these different villages. And then I, you know, I look, I look up and I see that there's this kind of a, this big body of land right across the Nari Strait. And of course, I'm like, well, I guess that's part of Canada. You know, that's Ellesmere Island. And in its narrowest, uh, there's an area between the two, you know, the two that's only like 13, 14 miles. Uh, and as a long distance swimmer, that is that is a distance that I had done before. And suddenly the 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 idea of what this expedition would be really shifted. And I became completely obsessed with with, you know, getting a chance to swim across this pristine uh, body of water. And the more research we did, the more satellites I looked at, I noticed that in that in those areas that's very tight, it's clogged with ice. Thankfully, <laughs> we don't know how much longer, but it is clogged with ice, you know, 364 days a year. Yeah. 
And so I had to kind of go a little farther south and uh, there's Pym Island on the Canadian side and, and that's a 27 mile crossing. And so I was like, oh man, that's, that's going to be a real rough one in particular because the water is, is usually below freezing. It's salt water. So it can get, you know, down to 29.5 Fahrenheit, no matter where, where you are and when you're going there, uh, it's going to be a lot of ice. It's going to be very cold and really uh, very little in terms of support. So that, that expedition grew out of uh, a friend of mine who I met on a caving trip, Wes Archer. And Wes Archer said, hey, man, I heard you're trying to get up there. And, 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 and that's it, you know, getting up. It's one of the most remote, hard to reach areas of, of the world. And there's only a few flights that go from a nook in southern Greenland up to places like Kanuk. Okay. And we knew that we'd be leaving out of Kanuk. We wanted to be working with uh, a lo- all local team because the only folks who really go out there other than military is, is, is local hunters. And so that was the idea was to pl- find a way to get to Kanuk and have a team of, of local hunters who would take us out in their boats or in their dog sleds, depending what time of year, to hit that piece of water and attempt a crossing. And so Wes, the, the way this whole thing worked is, you know, it was certainly too much money for me to, to go and just make it happen. And, and Wes had a small plane. Wes has a small plane. It's a Cirrus SR-22. Uh, very fast plane, uh, but once again, it holds probably, you know, two people. And we've been growing up with uh, collapsible kayaks, all of our gear, all my swim gear. And, you know, this would be, you know, the equivalent in my mind of taking a Volkswagen to the North Pole. <laughs> and, and that's exactly why Wes was willing to get behind it. Wes says, look, man, if you'll go in this plane with me and attempt this this trip from basically New York City up to Kanuk, you know, I'll make it happen. And I said, yeah, let's go for it. So he really did the logistical planning of, of the flight. And so you can imagine we can go 500 miles, 500 miles in this plane, but you have to constantly refuel. So to get up there, he had had fuel drops a year ahead of time. You know, you have these ships that drop off supplies to these very, you know, and it's fun to look at, you know, I encourage everyone. It's such an amazing part of the world. Just go north, go north and and look at some of these, these far outposts that are really the last northernmost outposts, especially once you get into the Arctic Circle. And yeah. then once you get, you know, like I said, farther into what is considered the high Arctic, the land without trees. Yeah. And uh and so fuel was being dropped off there, and that's how the whole thing had to happen. We had to leave New York in this tiny plane, and getting there would have been, you know, one of the biggest challenges is flying this tiny plane, getting the fuel along the way, and that's if we survive that, that's when my swim could begin. <laughs> if we survive that, so I mean, there's, there's, there were kind of, and you have a great website, greatarcticswim.com, and it, and it yeah, kind yeah. of um, lays this whole thing out, but it's really cool on the website, how you kind of broke this journey out into three phases. So it was like the getting there and then the air getting there. Right. And then the boat getting there and then the actual swim itself. So, so how do you get there? So we flew right out of, and and I've been on a bunch of test flights. So, I mean, yeah, Wes is really a hero when it comes to this, this part of the journey and really a brilliant, brilliant strategist. And it was really an obsession of his. And just to let you guys know how, the balance is everything. We had coloring books that we were bringing up for, uh, from a Polar Bear International, who's an organization uh, that I do some work with, with Polar Bear Conservation. They give us these coloring books for, for kids to bring up there. And the day of, Wes is like, open your bag again. And we were just going through what was in our bag. And he's like, we're not taking the coloring books. I'm like, Wes, we have to take the coloring books. And uh, he said, do you want to die in a fiery wreck or do you want to get there safely? I'm like, yeah, but the coloring books, he's like, take out the coloring books. <laughs> Just to let you know, like that's the level of kind of tension 
going into it. And, and, and of course the upset, you have to be, that's not my world is, is, you know, balances and weights and everything. But for Wes, he's such a, a brilliant strategist in that way. It was like anything we didn't need, we had to leave behind. Once you take off, you know, the scary part, certainly the only things that really scare me are those, those situations where you have no, you have absolutely no power yeah. to help the situation yeah. at all. Uh, this plane, you know, I learned how to do the autopilot. Uh, if Wes had a heart attack, we had done several like that of what we would do. And it would, you know, return to where we're going. This airplane does have a parachute. So if Wes did die or have a heart attack over the water or over land, you know, I had to not do the parachute over a, a series of, of cliffs because even if you land on there, of course, you're going to fall again. You got one sure. shot. So I was well versed with how to operate uh, the vehicle in that way. But once you leave, you know, what's interesting about it is it has a de-icing mechanism, but we were we realized quickly into the trip that it wasn't working. Mm. And we're going up to where, of course, we're going yeah. to high Arctic. <laughs> so what's unique about this plane is, is large passenger planes go above. They go really high. We're, yeah. we're pretty low. You know, we're beneath 10,000 feet most of the time. And if we're too high, we start to ice. Mm -hmm. And if we're too low, we're, we're getting our teeth knocked in with turbulence. So it was this very strange balance of not being too high, not being too low. And Wes saying, keep your eyes. And as co-pilot, he's like, keep your eyes on the wings, keep your eyes on the wings. Tell me if we start to ice over. I'm like, and you'd see these, he's like, once you ice over, you know, the plane is perfectly aerodynamic, but once you ice over, you turn into basically a rock in the sky and then you fall to mm -hmm. the earth. So I'd be watching out the, the window like this and I'm like, oh Christ. And you just see these fingers of death of ice forming on the wing. And I'm like, Wes, oh. Wes, we're getting ice. And he would drop down and then you start hitting turbulence. And then you, like I said, you try to find this sweet spot. Two experiences that were that were very scary. Yeah. Do you want that you want to share? Sure. Yeah, I will. There was one on the way there and there was one on the way home. I was not, like I said, uh, we, we had survival suits, these great survival suits that are uh, provided by Hanson Protection that we put on before we do a big crossing, we cross Baffin Bay. And uh, when we got across onto the Greenland side on the way there, we were going over a place called Disco Island. And Disco Island, uh, looking up on the map, it's, you know, it's not where disco was invented, but it certainly is, 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 a, is a place where I said, you know, we were playing some disco on the plane when crossing. And I said, this has been a lifelong dream. We're over Disco Island, let's play nice. some, nice. some disco. And, uh, and so we're going over the island and he had all these different charts and the charts you were using were the ones he did not usually use. And that's what he said. He goes, ah, oh, these are the different charts, but these will be fine. So we're going over Disco Island and I'm looking around me. So you can imagine we're, we're going beneath us. It, it looks as if the whole island had been covered in, in, in milk, like the fog beneath us, the cloud covering of these mountains was that thick. And you see these black jagged peaks peeking through the fog. And I'm, we're flying around and I'm looking over and, and I swear some of these uh, mountains are higher than the plane. Mm. And I said, Hey man, you know, I'm looking around and you're getting this very eerie feeling that these mountains are in fact higher than the plane. Wow. And so I, you know, he said, no, he goes, well, on the chart, it said our lowest safe altitude is uh, 4,000 feet. We're at 6,000 feet. The last thing I recall before going on the trip was, you know, I have a, a daughter and she was, you know, she was very concerned about my trip. And she said, dad, you know, uh, I'm worried about your trip. And she had had some psychic ex episodes before where she had kind of said things that really creeped everybody out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we do tend to, to listen if she says something. And she said, well, dad, what if you crash into a mountain? I said, Tati, I'm going to swim. You know, why would I be crashing to a mountain? She goes, 
Yeah, but you're going to be in that little plane. What if you crash into a mountain? I said, there's no situation. I'm going over the sea. Now, meanwhile, we were over the mountains because the tur- the, the situation in, in Baffin Bay was so bad. And, yeah. you know, as we're going up in the Smith Sound, it was really rough. That's why we were over land, which we, it wasn't really where we wanted to be. So I'm sitting there and I'm looking around me and I recall her saying that. She goes, I said, I promise no matter what, I won't crash no mountain. So we're sitting there and then I'm looking and I, about a few miles ahead of us, we're about to go into the clouds. Oh my gosh. And I'm looking at the mountains and I'm looking at the clouds. And I recall my daughter's voice in my head saying, don't crash no mountain. And I got a chill. I got a really instinctual chill. And, you know, I do have, you know, we'll call it a, a spider sense, you know, spider sense Yeah. where I don't usually feel bad feelings because if I do, it's, it's, it's very precise and it's a very particular situation. Don't go into that place. Don't do this. Don't do that. And I got that feeling. And I said, Wes, I'm really worried. We, we need to pull up. We need to pull up. He's like, why? And I told him real quick. I said, this is what my daughter said. And now I'm looking at this thing. And we looked and you could see the ridge line was like this. And then it seemed to be ascending into the cloud. Mm. I said, pull up, pull up. So he's like, all right, pulls up. We go higher up. And then as we go over that area, you look down and it was, our wheels almost touched the tip of that peak. Wow. Meaning that we were going over 200 miles an hour and we would have hit that thing face on and you wouldn't even be able to find us with dental records. And then so <laughs> he said, maybe we should get back over the water. I don't think these charts are right. Man, I'm getting chills right now. just thinking about your daughter and that conversation. And she, I mean, literally saved you. It, well, it was, it was good. It was a nice thing to give her bragging rights when I got home of, you know, yeah. we don't tell anyone anything when we're in the field, especially if there's security concerns or, or risk concerns, because it's not going to help to have people worried sure. about more than they already are. But when I came home and I told her she saved my life, I, I think it was pretty exciting for her to be able to, you know, go tell her friends, by the way, I just let you know. <laughs> wow. Everyone, I wanted her to pick lotto numbers. Uh, That's amazing. Hey everyone, it's Scott here. This podcast is a passion project for me because I absolutely love adventure. And it's thanks to the effort of my residential real estate team here in Charlotte, North Carolina, that many of you know as the W Realty Group, that this podcast gets funded. This awesome group of people have unmatched levels of competence and caring for our clients. If you know of anyone looking to buy or sell a home, Our team serves the Charlotte, North Carolina market, but we can also help you find an agent anywhere throughout the U.S. or Canada through our highly connected network. When you support our real estate business, you are also supporting this podcast. Thanks for listening and thanks for your referrals. So when you guys are landing that plane, are you landing on like defined airstrips or are you land? Of course. Yeah. So it does have, it's not a bush plane. Uh, There's an otter, twin otter plane is the optimal plane for this environment and they got big fat tires you can land on tundra this is in no means that plane which is why it was too too i think a lot of people in the aeronautical world it was an absurd uh, attempt to do this to do this flight because we needed tarmac and it's very limited tarmac and and we wanted to go we did want to go much farther up the place where there was the ice but he can't land unless he has strip there's a few companies borac borat was one of these companies who they run the show up there and you're talking about $40,000 a flight if wow. you want to go to these super remote areas. And of course, that's that's money I, I would never, even if I had that money, I wouldn't spend the money on something like that. I'd rather give to somebody who actually needs the money. Yeah. So, and, but once again, you, you, you know, you, oh, we're going to call them up. We're going to give them promotion in our film. They're the only show in town. And, and of course, that's, you, you have to respect that. That's their turf. Yeah. So taking West's plane was 
limiting in some ways because we had to uh, we had to find airstrips along the way. We had to make sure there was gas waiting for us. And in some situations, there was someone there to pump it. In other situations, he had a, a tool in the back that you just would hook up to your tank. Where's our tanks? There's no one out there. We're just on this almost like certainly not abandoned airstrip, but it's definitely not much going on. And we'd open up it up with the wrench. We'd pump it, fill up the plane, and we'd take off again. So it's unbelievable these far corners of the world, how it how things kind of operate. Yeah, that's amazing. And that's really just kind of a glimpse at phase one. So talk to us about the the seaport, the portion, the boat portion. Yeah, the boat portion was great. We had a, a great team amongst them, a gentleman named Otto. Um, he's a Nukwit, a very famous explorer and, and hunter who uh, we went out uh, a few folks on fishing boats, really, or seal hunting boats, narwhal hunting boats. If it had been when everything was frozen, we would have went via dog sled and towed the boats uh, 40 miles from Kanuk to where the water is. Uh, but we, we went 100 miles by boat up into the Nari Strait. And the hope was to get to Pym Island. Uh, Pym Island is a famous area where Cape Sabine is. Uh, there's quite a few uh, Arctic expeditions in the early 1900s who were there, where, you know, Greeley and, and quite a few bad things happened there uh, historically. So there's a rich history of, of, you know, that area of the world being, and, and to this point, it's still very, not very hospitable and it's very hard to get to. And so that was such a beautiful part of the journey. And, you know, the idea of doing this with folks who go there to hunt, to provide for their families, as opposed to going there with a big team of, you know, well-to-do explorers on a super yacht is to me was really the, the proper way to do it. And, and with this being said, we learned so much more than we would have if we went up there with like a bigger science team. So what, what time of year was this and uh, what temperatures were you guys facing? So we're, uh, this was in August and okay. we we're facing beautiful temperatures. Uh, the original, and just so you're aware, the original expedition was supposed to be in the winter. Okay. Um, kind of the tail end of that. And, and what happens is the Nari Strait uh, freezes over at Pym Island and forms an ice arch. Okay. And so you have this body of water that is beneath uh, the ice arch uh, that's almost like a giant pool. And that was my plan was to swim across that. When we went, the ice arch had not formed uh, because of, you know, obviously there's, there's a lot of different theories, but certainly a lot of talk that it might have been too warm for it to form. And so we had to wait till it all melted. Okay. So that's why instead of going in, in March, we went in August when it would be as warm as it would get. And instead of taking dog sleds to the edge, we went... We took boats all the way from the shores of Kanak up. The problem was, uh, in terms of my swim, is that a lot of old ice had broken off from the Lincoln Sea near the North Pole. And all that old ice had shifted over and was covering the entire uh, Canadian side. So we could not get to Canada. And we're in two fishing boats that are not in no way ice breaking vessels. We're not designed to endure ice. Okay. You know, they're, they're, they're designed specifically for open water. So we were there, we, we took refuge in a place called Cape Haven and uh, our two captains, we talked for quite a while and they said, uh, you know, we could wait this out a few days, but uh, Otto told us, he's like, man, I was here a few years ago and all the ice came into Cape Haven and we were stuck here for 10 days. And he goes, that, that's your whole trip. You know, he goes, we got food, we can find food, but you won't get anything done. They said, I, we recommend uh, for safety and for everything else that we'll take you as far as we can into the strait. And then uh, you swim back to Greenland. Mm. So we were going out. So we, we sat there for a few hours. We debated it. And uh, we went as far as we could into that strait. And they were pushing ice out of the way with their boats. The sheet ice, they were able to pull, obviously push, obviously the big icebergs 
that broke off from from glaciers, you're just avoiding those. I mean, some of them are the size of Yankee Stadium. Yeah. Um, and the scariest thing was as we're going, you're seeing the ice because the current closed behind us and you're just seeing this maze closed. You're like, are we even are the boats even going to get be able to get out of here? Uh, and we went as far as we could in. We were 11 miles. It wasn't 11 miles, actually, because it was 11 miles of swimming back because I was zigzagging. But we went, you know, as far as we could into this strait. We we're still technically in Greenland waters. We did not. The boats were not able to make it into Canadian waters. We certainly were not able to make it to all the way to Pym Island. And that's why they said, get out and start to swim. You know, and there was no questioning. Once again, the captains are the, always the captains. And, and, and you have to be humble when you're in the field and you have to take command from the people who this is their backyard. You know, if, if folks were to come on my turf, of course, I'm going to tell you what we're doing. And so went to get ready. And, uh, and of course, if we had a super vessel, you know, like a super yacht, and I could do it in a Speedo and do it over the course of a week. No question. But the way we're doing things, the way I, I really like to think the future of Arctic swimming will be long, continuous passages. So with that, I had to wear a wetsuit. Uh, they told me I had to wear fins because they said, look, if we can't get to you and the ice starts to close, you need to be able to pop up onto that ice or you're going to die. You're going to get either squished or you're going to get stuck beneath two plates. And these plates could be oh 50 meters long a piece. So, you know, I did have to wear fins. And uh, and so the idea was Wes is in a kayak. He has my food and he has my my liquid. And uh, our friend Emiliano Rupra was filming from one of the boats. And the two boats are kind of keeping an eye out for animals, uh, keep an eye out for the route. Uh, there's a smaller boat that was kind of going ahead and saying, this is what the ice is doing. And if the ice starts to close, you've got to get in the boat immediately. You know, if they, for any reason, if they call, if there's a walrus, if there's orca, if there's anything that's approaching that could be a hazard, I'm just a swimmer, you know, and I can't see shit, you know, farther than, than this. So kind of the, some of the fun stuff that happens in the field is went to go get dressed. Now you have to understand we're, we're living off these boats and they're, they're pretty small. So every night when we go to sleep, everything that we have goes out onto deck. And when we go out, we start working. Everything from deck comes back in the boat. I was not, that was not my, uh, my responsibility. So I said, Hey, uh, does anybody know where my wetsuit is? And so my wetsuit had been on deck for like the last two days. So I went to put it on and it was just frozen solid. It was just like a crunchy wetsuit. Yeah. And I have a, it's uh, what they call open cell neoprene, which is really just absolutely fantastic. It is a wetsuit. It's not a dry suit, but it really almost sticks to your skin. So it's, it works more like almost like having personal blubber than having a wetsuit where you have water kind of really moving around a lot inside. So I went to get my lubrication to cover my body with, and that had turned in basically into like a, a slush puppy. Mm -hmm. so, so I'm about to do the coldest, longest swim of my life and I've got a frozen wetsuit and I'm, and I'm covering my naked body in slush Ugh. on the boat. Wow. <laughs> this is hilarious. You know, the key with all these things is you have to laugh. You have to laugh about anything. You know, we don't bring any prima donnas with us in the field. If anyone's, you know, dramatic or emotional, it's like, you just, you can't, this is what it is. This is bound to happen. You have to laugh at the moment and accept the moment as opposed to say, Oh, my stuff is frozen. Who did it? No, dude, it's, yeah. it's gotta be a, a stone cold chiller and have fun with the absurdity of it. Or you yeah. shouldn't go. I want to go there as we kind of get through the swim. Cause that's some of that is just like building up that experience and that tolerance. Right. I mean, and that's, yeah. and that's kind of been the path of your, your whole life. So um, definitely want to come back to that. So take us through the swim portion of this. I mean, I think you just, you started to kind of give us some glimpses, but. I mean, the water is, I always try to take a moment to have a bit of a, a ritual to honor whatever 
ancestral beliefs there are there. So I poured some honey in the water for the spirits, you know, and, uh, and a woman who I'd met in the village, an older woman, she said, my spirit will be watching over you during the swim. I was, you know, it's a very interesting kind of spiritual outlook up there in the relation with the ice. She said, the first thing you need to do before you swim is eat a piece of ice. And she goes, the ice is going to warm you because you're, you already have the ice in you. So the ice can't chill you. So it was more of a, uh, kind of a spiritual theoretical concept, but it's something I took very seriously. Yeah. The great part is this time of year, there is foliage. There are botanicals growing in the tundra. So I took some flowers and I dropped them in the water and you, you work years to get here. And everyone, of course, it's hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. Everyone's like, okay, it's time to go. And it's like, no, it took me a long time to get here. I'm going to take 60 seconds, two minutes to really just enjoy that I'm here. And once I'm in that water, I can't ever enter that water again. I'm in it. So this is just the moment to yourself to really appreciate uh, what's about to happen. And you're, you know, and I'm standing on the edge. The interesting part about these ice, these iceberg pieces and the sheet ice is that, you know, you've got the flat part and then you always have like these edge pieces where I'm kind of standing almost waist deep and just kind of looking down into this water, which is bluer. It's bluer than my shirt. Yeah. Wow. And you just imagine you do have this strange feeling of what's looking up at you. And, and once you start, you're just, I try to fall asleep in my mind to kind of uh, just put aside anything because fear, fear is exhausting. Fear is a form of energy that you're using to be afraid and to be tensed up. So you, as, as hard as it is to do, you really have to just relax. And so that's when, uh, you know, you see people screaming and pounding their chest and then jumping in the water. For me, it's like I, I try to mentally put myself into a trance and basically fall asleep. And I swim so much that it is, it's more of a muscle memory kind of motor skill. So once I go in, it's a very peaceful process and I'm not challenging the environment at all. I'm trying to be, you know, at one with it, uh, both physically and spiritually to, to make it as easy on myself as possible. You know, this is not a sprint. This is a slow, grueling, horrible uh, swim, but it's a beautiful one. And we start swimming. So every 30 minutes, I'm supposed to be getting a meal. So I had prepared... Uh, what I, I found to be two things that, that I found to be very useful. Uh, I got a big Yeti thermos with a gallon of black coffee with honey in it and some electrolyte powder. And that's still hot and it's fresh and it's key that the hot liquid, the sugar and the, uh, and the caffeine yeah. are all good for keeping you warm. Yeah. Uh, but really the, the medicine is I take sweet potatoes and I bake them and I smash them with bananas, some grated ginger and some maple syrup. And I have these 10 bags of these sweet potatoes. So half hour into this swim, you know, and you're in, it's amazing because you're just looking beneath sheet ice and you see these looks like palaces made of this like blue ice carved, you know, it's an upside down world. You're looking and you just see these like gargoyles and flowers and strange kind of naturally things from the, from the currents that have carved that no one will ever see. Yeah, And even as I see them, I want to stop and be mesmerized, but I, you can't stop. So you're kind of just like, you know, in one of those, you're almost like in a haunted house or, you know, something where you, you're being pushed along on this cart, but you're seeing these fantastical sights. So Wes brings the bell and blows the whistle for my first food. Now, mind you, we had brought this food from New York. It had probably frozen, defrosted, frozen, defrosted. He hands me one and I go to open it and it explodes in my face because it had rotted and fermented. Uh. At which point, it wasn't, you know, and I'm, I love fermented foods, but this was definitely rotten. And you realize that this was not going to work. And at that point, 30 minutes into a, 
an endless swim, we realized we had absolutely no food for me other than oh my gosh. maybe a few, you know, a few bars that Wes had, which bars are a lot harder when you're swallowing salt water, your throat gets very irritated. So you want something, you want baby food. Um, but thank goodness for the coffee. And that was kind of how the swim started was with a frozen wetsuit and some rotten food. But that's once again, you got to just kind of laugh about it. I'm like, okay, challenge, uh, challenge accepted. Yeah. Can we, can we stop there? Cause like, I, I wanted to kind of talk about like the mental aspect of it and you, and you did such a good job of like talking about how you put yourself to sleep essentially. And you kind of put yourself in a trance, but I'm like imagining you, you know, swimming. How, how long was the swim? Like how, how many hours were you at it? Uh, seven and a half hours. And it turned out to be 11 miles, 11 miles and seven and a half hours. Like what is the mental chatter? If any, like what's going on? What are the thoughts in, in your mind as you're going through that? It's, I mean, I had, you know, uh, a zoologist had kind of got me a little concerned about the Greenland shark. Growing up, I did have a, a very uh, serious fear of sharks as a kid, which I think a lot of people who saw Jaws too early did, where you're even like, oh, did someone somehow put a shark in this swimming pool? Yeah. You know, and, uh, and of course, as a swimmer, that's one of the reasons I started swimming in open water was to kind of just to, to defeat that. Yeah. But the more I heard, you know, of course, orcas, anything else, the orcas, the walrus, uh, polar bears, they're all mammals and they do need to breathe. So certainly, and these guys are hunters. This is what they do. So they can see, they were seeing walruses that we were like, where? He's like, there's a walrus. So these guys were, of course, ready to hunt these things, ready to kill them, ready to eat them. So there was certainly some comfort level of them knowing how to watch. But of course, there was so much ice coverage. You know, all these animals are very smart. And uh, I mean, the walrus would want to kill me just for the sake of, of hearing me scream, not to, to eat me. But certainly yeah. they're very territorial and very tough. But the Greenland shark was the only sleeper where it just seems so absurd. It's the oldest vertebrae on the planet. Uh, they're almost, most of them, they have get parasites in their eyes. So a lot of them are blind. They're very slow. It's considered a sleeper shark, but they're very much opportunists. And they had said that, uh, you know, when they do have a kill, a lot of times these guys will show up and they're down 2000 feet, but they're, they got nothing to do, but wait and watch. And when, when the zoologist called me, he said, I, I don't want to freak you out, but I am concerned about this Greenland shark. And he goes, I know, obviously there's been no record of attacks on humans. And we're still trying to figure out if they are actually uh, a predator or just a, uh, a carrion gatherer. It was just one of those things where I was just waiting for this, you know, strange Leviathan, you know, at my most tired to just kind of slowly emerge out of the deep and come into focus, you know, at which point, of course, I'd do whatever I could to, to bob and weave. And, you know, I had a knife on me, which is just was for more of like, okay, almost to like get up on the ice if I had yeah. to. But that was something that kind of at least kept you alert, you know, and, and in some ways, yeah, you do want to be relaxed, but I think having some reason to stay awake is good. And uh, the ice kept closing around me and kept shifting. So I kept hearing the whistle blow. I'm going right this way. And you'd hear beep, 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 beep. And I look up and they're going like this. And I'm like, I'm like, the ice is here. Like it's closing. So then I'd go all the way over here just to kind of go back and go around. So that's why if you you can see online i believe we have the route we took and it looks like this is because the ice kept moving you're just zigzagging through it yeah zigzagging like crazy and that's it kept it interesting it kept it uh kept you kept you on your toes and kept you awake it was one of the few swims that i was really kind of aware the whole time you know because i feel i had to be you know i'll do 10 miles or 60 miles in the hudson river and i'll just be totally in another realm you know thinking about writing writing an article in my head or you know, thinking about some some nice memory, but this was one swim where I was until 
stage two type hypothermia when things started getting really psychedelic uh, that I was kind of, you know, pretty, pretty alert. Wow. I want to go. I definitely want to go there. I guess I was kind of imagining um, wrongly that you just kind of find this sort of meditative groove, but it sounds like on this swim, like you had to stay very alert and focused pretty much the whole time. I kept, I kept looking down. I'm like, I, you know, I think this animal's kind of slow enough. And that was the only, you know, I really was just like, it would just be just the perfect ending in a bad way, you know, but in me, it was like, you know, for all the experience I had with sharks, it kind of was, it was, it was in my head a bit. And usually I'm very relaxed, but it's like, all right, well, this could happen. And certainly this would be the first and, uh, and you know, what an animal to get eaten by would be, would be amazing. If you were to, it's better than getting hit by a bus, yeah. but certainly was something I was going to avoid if I could, if I could. I mean, did you, did you have to wrestle with fear thoughts and, and how did you, how did you kind of pull through that? Like I said, I mean, it comes back to the curiosity is always greater than the fear. And even the idea that being killed by one of these animals would be unfortunate, but it's, it was okay. Well, if something was going to happen, you know, what an, a way to encounter what these amazing ancient creatures on their own turf. So it's like, you want to get close to the fire, but you certainly don't want to be burnt alive. So knowing that they're there is part of the the thrill and looking down into this well of darkness and imagining what eyes are looking back. You know, the fear is tantalizing in a way. You know, you think of the map with all the dragons on it, and the one way to experience those dragons is to to be in the water with no protection, you know, and there's there's that balance, you know, there's that balance of, well, I'm here. If anything wants to come up and say hello, I'm just I'm not moving too fast. So like I said, there is something I enjoy about a, a little bit of that fear and, and, and going into the unknown because nothing to me would be worse than, than being afraid and backing down. Being afraid and going forward is one of the best feelings in life. And being afraid and backing down, I think anyone can testify is one of the worst feelings in life. Yeah. You know, so it's just like, it's, it is there and, and, and it is part of it. And it's a special part of it. And then getting back and, but having respect, you know, like I said, having really communicating with the water and communicating with the spirits that are down there. And the idea that, you know, these, these deities are the ones who are kind of in control of these animals and can send at you yeah. if they feel your intentions are wrong. So there is something spiritual there about having good intentions in your heart and not having it be, I'm doing this because I'm so strong and I'm so tough and I'm this person. No, it, it's got to be the complete opposite. You're completely kind of bowing down to the, the powers around you. And I think when you have that in your head, then you're, you're kind of saying, Hey, you guys mind if I swim through, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to just talk about how great this, this place is and this water, and I don't mean any harm. So it's like, you know, I'm kind of communicating as silly as it sounds when I'm there for hours swimming. I feel I'm kind of talking to the water, talking to the animals, talking to whatever ancient energies might be there and having a conversation. And it helps pass the time. And it certainly is, it gives you a sense of certainly not a sense of power, but uh, you feel like you're, you're sitting at the table and you're, you're kind of negotiating your passage rather than just hoping for dumb luck. Yeah. I'm hearing you said, like, I'm hearing elements of like you just recognizing like you're part of nature, like you're right. part of being in nature as opposed to being like this foreign object in this foreign place. That's, you know, being under attack. But I think I, your attitude of this curiosity, well, hey, you know, if it's my time to go, like, this is a pretty cool place to go. Like, that's just such an awesome way of looking at it. And it makes me wonder, like, 
you said to me that a lot of what's driven you is that your curiosity has been stronger than fear. I'm curious, do you get curious about fear? I think, you know, we are, we're most fearful of the things that we're not accustomed to, mm-hmm. you know, and I just said, it just, I think a good way to compare that is spend many years in the Bronx and knew a lot of really tough guys, street guys who were some guys who were gangsters or just fighters or whatever. And just some of the toughest guys in terms of street level who aren't afraid of anybody, but then you get them out of that environment. And you say, Hey, why don't we take a swim in the Hudson river? And you see, it's like the, the absolute recoiling horror that they even the thought of getting in that water or you know let's go into the let's let's go into the into the yeah i'm going to do this trip down into the bush the idea of going into the jungle and wild animals it's like so people become accustomed to their world and their surroundings uh but then all of a sudden it's like you know this person's a really tough person when they're standing on the street corner in a neighborhood that most people would not even want to go into but then you want to put them on the side of a cliff in a climbing harness you know and but if you switch those two people it's like but the more time you spend in an environment the more it becomes normalized you've ever sparred or boxed you know it's like that first time you get punched in the face and you're 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 seeing stars and you're like oh my god this is a terrible feeling but then if you're doing it every day by the third day you get punched in, in the nose and you just immediately hit back you're, you're you become numb to these things and i think that anything that anyone is afraid of the more you expose yourself to it the more comfortable you become with it and then it's just second nature so i think that that is Anything that I've been afraid of, if I recognize it, I, I feel obsessed with exposing myself more to it, and then it becomes normal. You know, then it becomes uh, not an issue. I feel like this is like a major theme for your whole life because you just keep pushing boundaries and getting more and more comfortable with things that are like you keep making familiar, like unfamiliar things familiar, and like in the process your your life experience has just continued to grow and grow and then all of a sudden you become this person that's able to do something like this great arctic swim that most people would never even imagine is that is that fair sure sure uh and i think a lot of it comes from looking at looking at maps you know looking at maps of places that people are saying you can't get here you don't want to go here whatever it is it's looking at it and imagining and of course you're going to visualize what it is in your head whether it's someplace like Iraq or where it's a place like the high Arctic, you're, you're creating your thought, your version of what it is. And usually it's, it is very different when you get there. Of course, it's going to be different if you've never been there, the smells, the taste, the touches. But then once you go there and you spend time there over time, you, you, you're no longer a stranger. It's no longer this mystery that's haunting your dreams. It's, it's becomes kind of familiar, you know? And I think the more familiar things are, the more easy they are for you to just to go there and know them and, and to funk and to function optimally in that space. Yeah, man. Um, so I want to, um, kind of round out the, the great Arctic swim and then just leave a little bit of time to kind of touch on the buildup that got you to this point. You mentioned hypothermia and you mentioned some tough mental challenge that happened with that. Yeah. So we had been looking at this one big outcropping that we were trying to get to and I'm swimming and swimming and swimming. Then we realized that there was a mile of ice between us and that land. And from me, I'm like, oh, we're almost there. <laughs> You're not even close. It's it's a big, giant, it's not a mountain, but it's a, yeah, it's a big, giant cliff. And it's still miles away. And then you see the ice. There's no way to get, it's an ice field. So luckily, Emiliano was on the other boat, my friend. And he said, we, we got, you got to touch ground, man. You got to get to Greenland. I said, well, I, can you guys tell me how far we are? 
So they went ahead that little boat. They said, try it around the corner, which of course. <laughs> but that's what you need. You need people who believe in you and and know that it's going to kill you if you don't get there. You know, it's going to uh, and they will push you as hard as they can. He says, right around the corner, right around the corner. So I'm just swimming through this maze. And at this point, I hadn't had food in six and a half hours. You know, I had another hour of swimming to do to get to the shore. I had no idea if they were telling the truth or not. But I'm like, all right, well, I got to just rely on my friends here. And I remember I finally saw green and rock. And no, no, I and no white in front of me in there, no ice. And I saw the boats, and I knew how big the boats were. And I'm like, okay, I think they're against the shore. And it was that last three quarters of a mile, half mile, that I was just, you know. And you get, it's, it's not a tingling cold; it's a deep core cold. You know, I had a wetsuit on, and everything else is numb at this point. But my body was definitely starting to slow down. I hadn't had this food. I really needed that fuel to keep me powered up and keep me warm. And it was, it was just not there anymore. And so I'm swimming and I could hear all my friends and family on my back. Like, you know, it's just, just giving you exactly the experience as I, as I had it kind of like little elves cheering me on. And I, you know, different people at different moments would come to me. This one is a swimmer. This one's a family member and say, you're doing great. This is great. And they were, I could feel them like pulling my arms like this, keep going. And my, you know, just my little feet were moving. And then you know, the dream as a swimmer with these kind of crossings is to see the bottom because you're looking into this twinkling abyss for hours and hours. And when you actually see something that's not an animal, that is rock, it's like, oh my God, it's it's going up towards the shore, yeah, you know? Yeah. And I do recall that seeing way down, I don't know if it was 70 feet or not, but I could see the bottom. But when I closed my eyes, I was having these very strong uh, psychedelic kind of visions where which doesn't make any sense as these things often don't, but close my eyes and my body was a carousel. It was two carousels like with horses on it. And it was twisting in two different directions, like breaking. Oh my gosh. And I closed my eyes and I said, so this is a very strong psychedelic vision I'm having here, you know? And I just would, I'm like, okay, you know, if you've ever had way too much to drink and you close your eyes and you feel like you're falling back through the wall, it was that feeling. But the visuals were, I was these two kind of horse, you know, carousels going and so I just decided to keep my eyes open but then I was seeing more things as I was getting towards the shore and when we got there you know finally I just I could see it and you know it's never just like a nice little beach it's like this rocky thing and I kind of flopped onto it and Otto who's our you know chief hunter handed me this piece of rock and he just shouted down at me and they were very kind of quiet guys overall very serious and he just screamed at me Greenland and he handed me the rock and I, and I held the rock and uh, and then they were able to get me onto the boat. And, you know, you're you do have vertigo for when you're doing any long swim, especially if you're wearing anything, you're getting out of land. You're really wobbly for a while. But I knew I needed to get the suit off. And I knew I needed to get in the boat and I had laid out my clothing inside and laid out towels. And we had a, a, a very, really good hypothermia blanket that had like 100 heating pouches. We were lucky we didn't skimp on that. <laughs> it was the more expensive one, but it definitely uh minimized my my damage and it put me on there and Amelia, you know they helped me get the wetsuit off and i dried off get all that water off and i put on the blanket and emiliano had bought me a bottle of uh, one of my favorite whiskeys lafroig there you uh, go we had been stuck so long on shore because of weather that he drank three-fourths of it uh, <laughs> there's still plenty in there so you go to take it so i'm lying down i got the blanket on and like this is at least for this trip the swim is over so i went to take a shot and just so you know your your throat is ripped to shreds from the salt water and the breathing and, and everything. So I couldn't drink it. So I took some of the hot, some hot water from the tea kettle, do three fourths 
of hot water and just, you know, a shot of Lafroy. And I was able to kind of continually enjoy it after that and, yeah. and stop shaking after about, you know, about an hour under the blanket. Yeah. That's, that's really, it's incredible. I mean, you know, long distance swim, but like in those conditions and, you know, the zigzagging through ice, I mean, what a visual, what did it, what did it mean to you to be able to complete this particular adventure? I mean, to me, the, on the personal level, it's just to make sure I did not get to do the swim that we set out to do, which was officially from Canada to Greenland because of the ice, but we did to, you know, we did the swim that was presented to us. And I think that that's, Really, what it comes down to is completing the thing that's been assigned to you, that the na- that nature that the universe gives to you, and and uh, so making it to shore and having my friends Wes and and the rest of the team push me to get to shore was what made it. You know, and Wes was cold in the kayak. Wes had been in the kayak, and he's like, "I'm beat. My butt hurts. You know, I I'm really getting beat up out here. I'm really getting cold." And uh, you know, he was the one who really got behind it. So getting his respect of him seeing that I was. I pushed it way beyond the limit for that for that section of swim without the food, and and him seeing that was was a nice experience for you know us as friends and him as the expedition sponsor too to see okay if I put Justin in there he's gonna go he's gonna get it done, you know he's gonna push himself to get it done and so we're excited about going back and attempting to swim from that that narrower passage which is Hans Island, and that is uh, if it's clear of ice it's only an 11 mile swim which. I can do no problem going from, uh, you know, we can go from Hans Island is now divided between Canada and Greenland. And I can start from one side of the island and swim to the other side of the strait. Yeah. I'm really excited about going back and, and, and completing it. That's awesome. I love that you're going to go back. Um, Justin, we could probably have an entire year worth of podcast episodes um, highlighting your different adventures. But just for listeners, um, a lot of people may already be familiar with your work. For those that aren't, how do you, how did you become this person? Like I, you didn't come out of the womb ready to jump into the narrow straight and do this swim. Like this was something that has taken a lifetime. How did you become this person? Easy way to describe that. Just kind of touch on my professional life and, and, and the different things I've done. Yeah. Uh, but I started, um, you know, I lived in the Bronx in the, from the, you know, 1999 to, you know, into the 2010s. And when I was there, I really enjoyed exploring locally and had originally been from rural Connecticut. And so when I was there, you know, it's, you can travel the world. Uh, one thing I would always say, you can travel the world without leaving the Bronx. And certainly a great way to experience that is through food mm. and through going to, you know, small local restaurants and, and, and meeting people from different cultures. And, and that was became something that I was very passionate about. And uh, out of that, I built a, a television show called Bronx Flavor. The way we handled that show was, you know, I, I enjoy having fun and enjoy uh, as a filmmaker from my filmmaking life is, is you know, not taking yourself too seriously. And I think a lot of people do that. And uh, so I created a character called Baron Ambrosia, who was this eccentric kind of 19th century explorer who was experiencing the Bronx for the first time. So he would go into these spots, you know, Puerto Rican Cuchifrito spot or a Bangladeshi place or a Jamaican spot on White Plains Road and be having this really like psychedelic novella of an adventure. So there were kind of these these fun skits, but they were all based around real restaurants and real people from the neighborhood and became a, a really fun way to celebrate the Bronx. And from there, it went on to the Food Network and Cooking Channel. We had one season and they were like, this show's really forward. It's too forward thinking for us. It's it's ahead of its time. We're not, we, we, we can't renew. And so they didn't renew. And uh, so there I was. My world was food. You know, anywhere I went in the Bronx, I would just 
it would be a party and I'd eat for free. And so I was up to, you know, 250 pounds. You know, I wasn't fitting into any of my suits. And I said, like, Jesus, you know, what am I going to do here? My show is not renewed. And this, I've been working a few years on this, this arc. And so then you're kind of left flat. And I think that's one interesting thing people think is, this, oh, this person has a TV show. They have lots of money. Well, I just bought a house. And so I had this giant mortgage payment, giant oil heating payment. We're in the Northeast. And now, boom, my show was over. So I was trying to figure out what to do next. So I was uh, fortunate to go and start working for National Geographic behind the scenes, a place I had always felt was kind of a home. Uh, I'm a member of the Explorers Club and certainly my relationships there create a lot of career opportunities for me to use my, my writing abilities and my, my expedition knowledge. On the physical front, you know, I'm like, how the hell am I going to kind of stop eating <laughs> and drinking every day and, and gallivanting? So I had always been a swimmer back in high school and, and done really well with it. Um, I was going to swim in college, but I was more interested in filmmaking. And so I called up the Bronx Historical Society. This is like in February in my house and it was cold and I was out of shape. My cholesterol is high. And I said, has anyone ever swam the Bronx River? And they said, uh, uh, nothing on record and certainly not by choice. And I said, well, it's eight miles. I'm swimming at this July. Every day I started swimming and I lost 50 pounds. I was back down to 195, was in great shape and swam that river. And it was a huge event and tons of people came out and there's cheering and partying and, and a lot of media coverage. And then people are like, where are you going to swim next? Where are you going to swim next? And it became an annual thing uh, to kind of stay in shape and to just engage people to, to do a big swim. So I swam through Newark, New Jersey. I swam through Camden, New Jersey. And then things became bigger when uh, I got sponsored by my favorite whiskey, Laphroaig, single cast nation, to swim around 100 miles around Isle of Scotland. And that was the first big international expedition swim, 100 miles, eight days in the really rough part of the North Atlantic. And out of that came a lot of sponsorship opportunities. We made a film about it. I traveled around with the whiskey company for a year as like their explorer and residence, giving these big presentations. And that was kind of connecting those worlds of a product that I love in swimming and traveling and culture. And, and from there, we've, we've uh, a good friend of mine, Chad Anderson, helped me kind of create the business model for that. And, and that's something that we continue to do in terms of one of the, way, one of the ways we get these things funded. It's so awesome. I'm, and I know we could go on forever about it. You used the phrase I'd never heard before called the explorer's disease. Sure. Uh, that was something that we talked about when you and I talked before this. And uh, I love this concept. Can you share for listeners, what is the explorer's disease? Well, I think the explorer's disease is you, once again, I think it comes back to looking at maps the way some people may look at pornographic material, you know, and you look at these places that are this little speck of the map or, you know, essentially in some ways in terms of Western perceptions and Western media, these, these no-go zones, these no-fly zones and becoming obsessed with what's there and what's happening there and, and going there. And, you know, the, that curiosity is certainly going to outweigh the fear of, of going there. And it becomes such an obsessive thing that it's, it's, it can be, it's certainly great for the personal journey, but it can be detrimental for your financial life, your personal life, but it, it doesn't matter because the curiosity and the passion to experience everything in the, that you can in this life is, is, it takes precedent over, over all and getting there. And, and no matter what, you're going to find a way. And that's certainly, uh, and recently I started a 51C3 the History, Arts, and Science Action Network, and our primary focus is cultural preservation of you know, vanishing traditions in crisis zones. 
So this is a way for us to kind of give back, but it's also a way for me to go to the places I've been dying to work and dying to go that National Geographic Discovery Channel would not send me, you know, places like Iraq, uh, Somalia, uh, we'll be doing some work in Afghanistan. And it's a way of combining, you know, I'm not there for the journalism, I'm, I'm not there for the conflict, I'm there for the the ancient frankincense and uh, myrrh routes, I'm there for the, the lapis lazuli mines, you know, I'm there for, you know, what elements of ancient Sumerian culture are still existing in the marshes of Mesopotamia and, and celebrating those things. So that's it, is that explorer's disease is seeing, Frank, you know, smelling frankincense in a church and being like, well, where does that come from? And then immediately going home and you're just researching, you've got the maps and you've, you're up till three in the morning, so obsessed and then saying, there, and you point the spot on the map and no matter what, no matter what you know, it might take time, but you will go there. You will be scoring those trees and smelling the frankincense coming out. You will be in that lapis lazuli mine with you know, a 10th generation miner taking out this tiny piece of lapis and having that experience and, and seeing these wonderful places. What's so awesome and really, I mean, inspiring is this person that you've become, it started with curiosity and yes, you've become this international explorer, but your curiosity started very locally, as you said, just kind of exploring different restaurants, like right where you lived and just following that curiosity over and over and over again things just continued to expand for you. Justin, if people want to find out more about you and all the amazing things that you've done and are doing, um, what are some of the different ways that people can do that? I see social media is somewhat of a, a necessary evil, but the one place I do have been keeping up is uh, on Instagram at Justin underscore F-O-R-N-A-L. And that's where we, we update everything. And certainly Hassan World, H-A-S-A-N Worldwide.org is that's my organization. That's all, everything will be out of that, that site. So for, for continued updates there. Um, and like I said, I always encourage people direct message me on Instagram. You know, I love to hear from folks. And, and one message I do have to everyone is just be more open to trying experiences. You know, people talk a good game. You know, I see people you know, when people drink some whiskey or they smoke some weed and all of a sudden everyone's talking about all their adventure ideas and da da da, And then it's like, okay, well, cool. I'll call you on Saturday. And then you see people, they're just not really about it. And people, people are intrinsically, you know, kind of in some ways, a lot of folks are just a little bit lazy about it. You need to get over that hump and say, I don't care if it's going to be a seven mile drive to try this one thing. You know, you have to just say, well, just go for it. Absolutely go for it. If there's something strange on the menu, order it. Just absolutely try these things. You have plenty of, you have all the time in the world to sit on your couch and look at your, your, your phone. You know, you, that, that's not going anywhere. You have time to do that. So it's just, I just encourage people, if there is an opportunity to ice climb or cave or try something you haven't tried before, take, take more opportunities when they come to you to have these experiences. Justin, I love that you brought that up in your experience. Like what is it that stops people from going after it? And, and what's your advice for how to overcome that? It's interesting because a lot of people have hangups that they don't tell you about. You know, we have a we have a game dinner in the Bronx every year where we're serving raccoon and and possum and all these things. And, and these people are some big and, and a lot of insect dishes just and it's really connecting back to ancient indigenous foodways and some big food writers. People always love to write about it, but a few people have never come. I said, you know, you've never come to my dinner. And they said, well, I'm an adventurous eater, but I just have a thing with textures and meats that I just can't get over. So. A lot of people have stuff that they, you know, they need to address on their own. Yeah. But uh, I just encourage people just to, to, yeah, 
and you see the difference, man. You see the difference. Like Explorers Club is a great place, and they've got a Friday night frolic, and I'm, you know, I pop in once in a while, and you'll get in conversation with people, and you'll see the people who are ready to go. Oh, we we found an open manhole, and it's going to take us down to this part of the sewers. You see the people who are really about it in that moment, and that's I think it's something you have or you don't have. And you see the people who have all the awards, the accolades, and have been on these big da da da, and they just immediately like, well, we need to contact the blah 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 blah. And I'm like, all right. You know, if you're not about it right now and you're not, your curiosity does not outweigh your fear and you're not really about it, about it, then, okay, go ahead. You can have those big ticket things and and, and those accolades, but the people who truly are explorers in their heart are always ready to have that new experience. Always ready. I love it. This is awesome, man. There's no doubt in my mind that there's going to be an epic Hollywood movie about your life at some point. <laughs> and I want to know when that movie happens, who's, who's going to be the Hollywood actor that's going to play you. That's, that's a hilarious question. Uh, one thing I will say about that is I am writing my first book working title right now is poison to a God and it, but it really has to do with all my, my research with, uh, kind of different rituals and ceremonies around the world. I don't know anyone in Hollywood, uh, you know, in that world, but I reconnected recently with an old college friend who is Joe Maganello who was nice. on um, True Blood. He yeah. played the vampire on, I'm sorry, the werewolf on True Blood. And he's just, he's a very, you know, we hadn't seen each other. We And we barely knew each other in college, but somehow we reconnected. We met for lunch. And he just, you know, very into Dungeons and Dragons and really an interesting dude and a very tough dude, you know, a big guy. And so just jokingly in my head, I said, you know, that what would that irony be that, uh, you know, after these 20 years or whatever, that uh, if I did write this book, if, if Joe liked the story and went on to, to play me in the, in the film. Love it. That's so awesome. Say the name of the book again. So the title that I had written was poison to a God, but my agent prefers uh, how to sell your soul, a user's manual on transactional spiritualism. So we'll see which one, which one hits the streets, man. As I was like, just looking over all of your stuff and all of your experiences, I was going to ask you today if there's a book in you and I'm so glad to hear that there is, I will, I will be the first one to buy it. I'm super excited. Justin, this has been such an awesome conversation. Thank you so much for, for the, for the work that you do. And like, you know, for following your curiosity and just being who you are, because it's hugely inspirational. It really is. Um, I'm inspired. And for those listening, I hope you've been inspired today as much as I have. I hope Justin's story has encouraged you to listen to the voice inside that calls you to adventure because we want to hear your story next. If you have a story to tell or just need a nudge to create one, please send me an email. We'd also appreciate it if you'd help us spread the word by leaving a review and sharing or tagging Inspire Campfire in your social media. And until next time, I want to encourage you to get outside. Thanks for listening. Justin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Scott, so much. And the last thing I will say is, and, and I, something I take pride in, I take, everyone should pay attention to this, is be a gate opener or not a gatekeeper. And certainly anyone who wants to reach out to me with questions about different places, please reach out. I, I take pride in being a gate opener and connecting people as opposed to being one of those folks who magically stays behind this veil and acts like what they're doing is, is magic. It's not in any way. Just hard work. Take your time. Do the research. But uh, I'm happy to help whoever I can. So thank you so much, Scott. And thank you to everyone listening. Thanks, Justin. Cheers.